Father, we don't need to pray because we've been praying. And so we continue in the Spirit. We've given you a long list of uh, things that we need, but for every one of our needs, it was matched up by one of your qualities. You are more than sufficient for whatever we are each lacking and hurting in tonight. So make your presence known to us in special ways. As you've done through the worship, now do through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A little housekeeping for you. You should have received, as you came in tonight, three pages. Um, the introduction got separated from session one, so you should have page one, and then page two and page three. If you do not have those, wave your hands, and the ushers will ush one through you quickly. Look at this. There's like a whole rebellious row there. I don't know. You, they snuck in during the worship or something. Um, keep your hands up, Steve and Allie and a few of the rest of you. See if you, can, see if you can fix these people up. As we are working on that, we have some unfinished business from this morning. Where did, where did Albert go? Okay, you were there, right? Okay, I was like... Albert was talking about my tattoo this morning. <laughs> How many of you just joined us tonight and you were not here this morning? You're going to, okay, okay, okay. You, you walk kind of in the middle of it. He made a comment, casual comment about tattoos. He was talking about some gang activity, some different things. And then, and then, all, and then all of a sudden, he was, he really was. And, and then all of a sudden he goes, but today everybody has tats, including, including Phil. A big old walk through the Bible across my chest. My, my only question is, how in the world did you know that? <laughs> we've, never, we've never met before this week. I don't, I, I don't, I don't know how you, how you happen to know that. This is, I was not going to, with this being kind of sort of transitional halfway house for former DTS people making, I was not going to display this tat publicly. Some are wondering why would tattoo ink be necessary for my six pack? I ask my wife about that and she says, hubby, she goes, when, when we got married 39 years ago, you had a six pack, but with inflation, it's now a full keg. And so any, anyway, and um, you, you know, I guess in the interest of full disclosure, I should probably show you the one on my back as well. YMA, that's all you need to know. Anybody know what that stands for? That stands for Your Move Albert. Okay, there we go. Now we need to pray. Now we need to pray. Father, thank you. Uh, many of us, many of us do not laugh enough. C.S. Lewis said, joy is the flag that flies over the Christian, indicating that their Lord is in residence. 
And Father, one of the surest signs that joy is alive in our hearts is when we laugh. So Father, help us to laugh more this week than we have laughed in a long time, some of us, so that we can also be just so serious with you at special times too. Father, thank you for this place. 113 years now, groups have been gathering like this, and it is not veered from its purpose. May that be true this week as well. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, the really scary part is that was my wife's idea. <laughs> oh, man. You, you think you know somebody after almost four decades, and then that happens. Um, welcome to what is going to be the next course from Walk Through the Bible. Part of my job as president is to create a new course each year that then gets pumped out through our 11 regions around the world. And um, I'm telling you, Mount Hermon has been a very big part of this process through the years. I think, I think this is my 10th time um, being invited here to Mount Hermon, and this has become, in a lot of ways, a, a lab for us, um, especially with these courses that we call the Biblical Character Series. When I became president, we had a problem because I asked our global leaders, I said, I said, what input would you have? What would you like? There's no sense us creating resources and going, now go distribute them. You ought to have a voice into that, and immediately they divided in two, and I knew why my predecessors, Bruce Wilkinson and Chip Ingram, hadn't asked him very often. Because immediately it was a 50-50 split, and I went, great, this is, I'm going to do so well as the new president of Walk Through the Bible. And um, half of them said, we want, we want tools that can take people to maturity in Christ, even if they just barely know him, that would grow them discipleship resources. And I said, great, how many of you like that? Well, okay. And then I said, everybody, is that what you're looking for? And the other half said, yeah, kind of. But we have opportunities to work with leaders, leaders all the time, leaders not just in the churches. When we launched our course on Joseph in the Philippines, there were nine military generals in attendance out of the 6,000 people who were there. And they said, can we not get this into the Filipino military? We, we're growing leaders. This is a story of David. This shows us how to develop leaders. We're all about character. The, the police, or the new mayor in Juarez, Mexico, a few years ago, got rid of the entire police department, at least the upper-ranking officials, because too many of them had sold their souls to the cartels. And our director in Mexico became friends, and all he wanted to do was pray for him. But after a while, the mayor says, don't you have something that can grow the character of our police officers, even, even if they're not Jesus people like you, and our guy said, yeah, we can. So that half says, we need leadership development resources. And what we found is when we take a man or woman in Scripture and we open up their life, it's both a discipleship resource and a leadership development resource. And so right here at Mount Hermon, you helped us create Crucible, the choices that change your life forever. That was on the life of David. You helped us create Detour, finding purpose when life doesn't make sense. That was on the life of Old Testament Joseph. Chosen, when God calls your name, is about Mary, the mother of Jesus. So many churches this Christmas are going to use this all through December. It's so exciting, the doors God is opening up for that one. Revolution, some of you at Dallas Week, you heard part of this last year, how millennials can change the world and what they need from the rest of us.
looks at King Josiah's life. And now the brand new one um, that I taught one week last summer, um, a different week that I was here, called Chiseled, Becoming the Masterpiece God Created You to Be on the Life of Simon Peter. This week, you get handouts because this isn't ready for prime time yet which means it can still be beat up and, and improved in a lot of ways. This course is called Refuge, Finding Home in a World of Change. It does not say refugee. It says refuge. Jewish tradition ascribes the book of Ruth, because that's what we're going to be working through this week. It, describes, it ascribes the book of Ruth, most likely written by Samuel. Christian scholars agree that's a pretty logical guess. We don't know for sure. The author doesn't reveal his or her name, so we don't know for sure. Whoever it was was one gifted storyteller. In fact, some, not just Christian writers or Hebrew scholars, say this is arguably the greatest short story ever written. There's so much in four short chapters. Book of Ruth takes place during the period of the judges. The period of the judges, the days of the judges, were characterized by certain things. There's a bunch of them on your screen here. First of all, by weak leadership. Weak leadership. Judges came and went. They didn't have a king for long-term stability. They had these judges, not like Judge Judy or Judge Wapner, but they'd raise up an army, they'd force Israel's enemies away from their borders, and then people go, whoo, it's good to know you're there in an emergency, God. If, if, if we ever need you again, we'll talk. My people, we'll do lunch with your people. They'd forget God all over again, and they'd go, and they learn and forget the same lesson over and over again for 400 years. We throw these time frames around in Scripture like they're no big deal. This is about twice as long as our nation has been a nation. 400 years is a long time to go no place. Weak leadership, radical individualism, no absolute truth, and those two things go together. What you believe, I'm great, I'm glad, I hope that works for you. That's not what I believe. I believe this. So the idea of absolute truth had kind of gone away. There's no right, there's no wrong, except that which I believe in my own mind to be so. As a result of that, there's a ton of idol worship. And these are not just little harmless statues out in the backyard. I, I mean, there's, there's temple prostitution. There's, in some cases, even child sacrifice. There's some really gross stuff going on during the period of the judges. And as a result of this, the nation's weak, and so they're experiencing frequent wars over and over and over again. And the book of Ruth stands out in glorious splendor in contrast to just the prevailing attitude of the age. You know, if you go look at a diamond, 40 years ago I went and looked at a diamond at Stone's Jewelers in Wheaton, Illinois. I don't know why I did that. When my mom met Ellen for the first time, um, I took her home for a weekend. We were not real serious yet, but if you take a girl home from college, it's pretty serious. And uh, my dad and Ellen kind of hit it off. My mom goes, come with me. And she takes me into their bathroom. That was weird enough right there. She closes the door. She even locked it. And she digs around in the back drawer, and she opens up a ring box, and there's this thing you could ice skate on. 
I'd never seen this ring before. I go, where did you get? She goes, you know, I've been going to those jewelry auctions. She goes, she goes, look, she goes, if you let this girl get away, then I have raised a fool. And she hands me that ring, and I kind of went, Mom, I know this, that's a beautiful ring, by the way, good grief. And um, can we still afford for me to go to college with you buying that? And, and I, said, I said, if and when I propose, because you're a little ahead, Mom, and uh, I said, if and when I propose, I want to earn the money for her ring myself, which I did by cleaning Wheaton Sports Center from 11 till 3, too many mornings, and it was gross. And um, I didn't get to buy a ring quite that big. And Ellen eventually inherited it and went, yes, your mom was right all along. And, no, she didn't say that. <laughs> she didn't say that. But every diamond that I looked at was displayed the same way. It was displayed against a velvet background, usually navy blue, black most often. Why? For the contrast. And that's how Ruth's life is, set against that, that difficult background of struggle. Her life shines even brighter. Well, Judges chapter 21, 25 summarizes the dominant problem. It's, here's your diagnosis. It says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. If you've been to walk through the Old Testament, we say everyone did what was right. What an encouraging verse. Say that with me. Everyone did what was right. Unfortunately, the verse continues. In his own eyes. Oh, way to mess up a really good verse. I'll bet back then they had to take a Gallup poll to decide if something was moral or immoral. Aren't you glad you don't live in a day like that? <laughs> Shaky leadership, radical individualism, no absolute truth, idol worship, frequent wars. Man, praise God, that's all been fixed and is not an issue in <laughs> our generation. There were a dozen or so judges. Three of them are the dominant ones. Deborah we celebrate because, first of all, she's female, and it shows God has always had a plan for women in serving him. The other thing that's cool about Deborah, you've got to read about her, whether you're a man or a woman. She gives praise to God, not just begging for help before the battle, but after the victory. She praises and she gives him the credit for the victory, and that is not our tendency as humans. Then you have Gideon, probably the most familiar one. Remember that fleece squeezer? Lord, I, I, I believe that you've called me to fight the Midianites, but would you just confirm it tonight? I'm going to put a fleece out in the backyard, and, and Lord, in the morning, make the fleece wet, but the ground dry. God goes, go for it. Squeezes out the fleece, soaking wet. Uh, don't get mad at me, God, but would you do it again tonight? Because, 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 because. Anyway, tonight, make the whole ground wet, but the fleece dry. Now, church is split over this. There's two major doctrines here. One is he's a math and science guy, and he's like, the fleece is more dense than the grass. It might evaporate more quickly. Some of you are going, yeah, and others of you are going, I don't even get that. And so, some of you are going, no, Hezekiah is St. Bernard that's never on the leash like he's supposed to be. He might hit the fleece, but no way does he wipe out the whole yard. And the, You can worship together. Believing both of those doctrines, you really, really can. I don't even know which one is right. Gideon is so pleased after God brings the victory out man like crazy. To celebrate, he travels throughout Israel. In fact, now throughout the whole world, wherever, whatever hotel he stays in, he always leaves a Bible in the, in the nightstand. You, you know him. <laughs> Samson, the strongest weak man who ever lived, 
Did, have I mentioned my tattoo and my... Yeah, I did. Okay, okay, okay. Look at Ruth. Here we start. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Wait a minute. This is Israel. These are God's people. What's a famine doing there? Because hard times hit the lives of God followers too. You know, when there's a hurricane, or maybe more relevant to you, a, a wildfire, this may come as a big shock to some of you. I doubt it, though. You know, it's not like the fire's coming down this way like it was approaching Chico, and all of a sudden God goes, hey, 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 there's a family there that goes to Mount Hermon every year, and God just and blows it around that house. Tough times hit Christ followers as well as lost people. I travel a lot internationally for a walk through the Bible. I haven't been to near all of our 140 countries, but I've been to enough of them. You know one of the things that breaks my heart? It is what we export. We export our pornography, and arguably even more destructive is we export the weirdest version of Christianity that you can imagine. It's called the prosperity gospel. That when you come to know Christ, then your life will be trouble-free. It's like you've been Teflon-coated. Remember that stuff? Psh, problems come, but they don't stick. Albert, you got to have a bigger international ministry. You do. We can partner together, and maybe we can even help you some. We need good, strong Bible teaching around the world. Because I'll sit, and sometimes I'm getting ready to go speak someplace, and they'll turn on the TV, and I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus by using their name, but, but you, know, you know the names, big names. What happens when then you hit a hard time in your life. There's only two choices. If that's the gospel you believe, there's only two choices. You don't have enough faith, which is why you're struggling, or maybe somebody sold you a bill of goods in the first place, and God isn't really who he claimed to be, and he's not capable of doing the things that you were told God was capable of. Either one of those is a really lousy situation. telling you something if you if you can't teach it to a single mom in Haiti don't don't teach it to some of the wealthiest happiest comfortable people that you know who go to Carmel Bible Church or live in Silicon Valley it's got to pass the single mom in Haiti test or it's not the real word of God that's free. That's not even in here. I'm just a little fired up about that one. The days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem, now that's ironic. Great writers always use irony. Bethlehem means house of bread. Of all the places a famine shouldn't hit, it's there in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, they went to live for a while. This is short term. This is just to survive. They're forced to migrate in the country of Moab. Moab is across the Jordan River. 
Today, it's the modern-day country of Jordan. We have had our Middle East-North Africa conference the last two years in Amman, Jordan, because the king of Jordan and, and the queen of Jordan, they, they believe in safety for all different faiths, and it's the best place that, that we can gather right now of any place in the Middle East. But the Jews had had a violent history with Moab, oppression back and forth, wars. So for somebody who lived in Bethlehem to go, we're going to Moab because we're starving to death here in Bethlehem, that's a real move of desperation. You know, displacement is a common theme throughout human history, both voluntary and forced. It happened in Bible times, it's happened throughout history, and it's happening like crazy today. And don't think of it as check the box that applies. Is it voluntary or is it forced? Because those are not two distinct things. Those may be poles, but there's a continuum. Because from a distance, we can go, why don't they just stay where they are and make where they live better? They're, they're just, it's just voluntary. If the cartels are running the streets in your town and your kids and grandkids are in great danger, in your mind, that's forced. I will do anything to save the life of my grandkids. It's very easy. You know, that's voluntary. They just need to, they just need to you know, stay where they are. You talk to enough refugees, you'll come to a different conclusion on that. It's a continuum. It's a very difficult situation, decision. Our son and daughter are at very different viewpoints on that. Our son has not had the exposure that our daughter has had, and so sometimes he can say some pretty tough things about immigration. And Emily, who she went and served in Greece and rescued people out of the sea who have come across from Turkey after walking across Iraq. I mean, she, she is my card-carrying millennial cause-oriented individual superhero person. And she's a better logical arguer than Philip, and he would get frustrated, and he'd just go, oh, just, just shut up. Don't, don't logic me into a corner. I, kn I know what I believe. I go, Emily, you realize none of what you're doing is effective, effective at all, right? You're just cementing him in his position. And then she switched one day. She said this to our son. She says, Philip, I know we have different positions on this. She says, but, but it's kind of weird because of all the people that I know, if our family was really struggling to survive and, and we didn't have enough money, of all the people in our whole extended family, in fact, of all the, all the people I know, you would be the first to cross a border find a job and work your tail off so that you could mail some money home to us. So I'm not asking to switch positions. But she goes, I just find it weird how violently you're opposed to some of the things I believe. And he just softened. He said, that's really all a lot of them are doing, isn't it? I, I, I never thought of it that way. Now that only lasts about two minutes and then they were back <laughs> at it again. But I put it, I added it to my dad resume because I'm sure somehow I had something to do with that. 
few examples. You know, Jacob's family went to Egypt to find food. That's right there in the book of Genesis. Persecution caused the early Christians to scatter. That's the book of Acts in the New Testament. Pilgrims came to the New World to freely worship. Africans were taken and brought to the West as slaves. I don't have time to develop this, but our leader in Ghana, after we trained a bunch of folks there to teach detour on the life of Joseph, he says, hey, he says, um, I don't know if, you, if you've ever heard of such and such a city or not. And I said, yeah, I have. That's where a lot of the slave trade came from. And he goes, yeah, how do you know that? I said, we learned it in school. And he says, well, the worst maximum security prison in our whole country is there. And some of our instructors think we ought to teach detour there because if there's ever a city, if there's ever a place where reconciliation is needed, it's there. And I'm like, can you get into max security prisons? Because we can't. We do a lot in prisons. Tough to get into the supermaxes. Says, I don't know. Says, we're in. I'll tell you how it went. We gathered a bunch of people to pray. We get the report. He says, yeah, 300 people showed up. Well, that was 300 inmates plus 100 guards. In America, the guards will never study simultaneously with the inmates because that makes them too close to being equal. So much repentance, so much reconciliation, so much forgiveness, even prisoners to guards and quietly and appropriately guards to prisoners. God likes to show off sometimes, so they're on the way out of there, and the Muslim chaplain comes up, and he says, I don't know if you saw me or not, I walked by the door like 18 times today, I was listening. They go, why didn't you come in? And he goes, I think we both know I couldn't do that. I'd lose my job. And he goes, we don't, we don't have any teaching like this in Islam. Because we do believe there was a guy named Joseph, but we haven't developed the lessons from his life. You have a bunch of leftover workbooks. You had some PowerPoint. Is there any way you would let me teach this in, in the Muslim chapels here in the prison? Our guy over there goes, I should have called you. I'm not sure if I did the right thing. And he goes, I ask him, are you sure you're not going to try to show the superiority of the Koran over the Bible? You're going to treat this stuff fairly? He goes, he goes, yeah, we have a high view of the Bible. I said, what'd you do? He says, I gave him the stuff. And he goes, I can pay. And he says, I told him they're on sale today. They will cost you one hug. Sometimes God just shows off. Potato famine drove the Irish to America and other places. Again, I do not want to politicize this this week at all. I would ask you to cancel your subscription to Fox News for seven days, to unplug CNN, and to just let God's word speak for itself. Because you don't need to change political affiliations for us to become more biblical. Stalin exiled dissidents to Siberia. In fact, our director over in the former Soviet Union was raised in Siberia after his parents were exiled. ISIS is forcing Syrians and Iraqis to flee for their lives. Conflict and poverty are driving Africans 
out of Africa into Europe and beyond. There's nothing new about displacement, migration. What's new is the unprecedented size and scope of the migration right now. Look at this map. It's kind of, you can't really tell what's going on there. It's designed to move, and with my limited technical skills, I pasted it in, and it doesn't move. It's static. But you can figure out from that there's a whole lot of people going to a whole lot of places. Unless you wonder if this relates to you, this isn't just an issue of immigration. This is an issue of when a job takes you across country. This is an issue of you don't live close to your grandkids. We're in Atlanta, Georgia. Our one and only grandchild is in Omaha, Nebraska. That's forced migration that we don't approve of. <laughs> it's a bigger topic than just immigration. But in 2017, there were 258 million international migrants. Just think about that for a minute. 258 million. It's like a fourth of a billion, right? That's 3.4% of the global population. Ah, 3.4%, that's really not that much. Well, let's go back to that 258 million. You realize that's 80% the population of the United States? Now, they're all not coming from one place to one place. But that shows the scope of the challenge. I believe the story of Ruth has never been more relevant than it is today. God's using crucible and detour like crazy around the world in refugee camps with, with people who are living in the crucible because of persecution, because of their faith. And I, I think there's just no limit to what God is going to do with this course including this week. Chapter 1 of Ruth is about losing home. Losing home. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of the two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathots from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. So here she is, She's an immigrant, and now she's a single mom. Pretty tough situation. Malon and Kilian, verse 4, both marry Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth, after they had lived there about 10 years, so this famine is stretching out. Both Malon and Kilian also died. Are you kidding me? And Naomi was left without her two sons or her husband. There's their family tree. You got Elimelech and Naomi, two sons, Malon and Kilion. They both get married, and then look what happens. Elimelech dies, Kilion dies, and Malon dies. She's now lost her husband and both sons. Widows and foreigners, especially back in Bible time, have few rights. Even a lot of times, there's a lot of places where we have ministry in Africa today, and sometimes the laws are on the books, they're just not enforced. If a husband dies, all the laws say that his widow keeps the land. And yet in many places in Africa, that's not what happens. That land is taken by the brothers of the husband, or even sometimes just other random villagers. 
International Justice Mission is confronting that, and they're doing a really good job of it. But it's hard to change a culture. Widows, foreigners are socially, economically, and physically vulnerable. How long can this go on? Verse 6. When she, that's Naomi, heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. Now just, we've got to double-click on this a minute. Notice the wording. Who caused the crops to grow again? According to that, what's it say? God. Who caused the crops to stop growing then? God. That's her worldview. Let's give her some bonus points because she believes in God's sovereignty. God is in control. That's good. Naomi and her daughter-in-law is prepared to return from home. It's good to believe that God is in control. But her mind is going to take a jump of logic in a minute that some of our minds have taken good doctrine and have twisted it with some wrong application. You'll see it in a minute. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. And the famine, after the famine ended, by the way, why do you always fill in the blanks? They're kind of insulting. Because of the ten or 20,000 people around the world who will teach this, this is our way of keeping control. Because crowds worldwide are the same. If you leave a blank empty, they will mutiny. If we skip a blank tonight, I will hear about it before breakfast tomorrow. Some of you, it will rob you of your joy in Christ for 30 days, and you're like, what about that guy who's here for free counseling? We're going to need that, because Phil left out a blank. So don't be insulted by this. It also helps maintain consciousness. It will be particularly helpful tomorrow night after train day. Verse 8, Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you. Circle the word kindness, because we're going to have to come back to that one. As you have shown to your dead and to me, may the Lord grant that each of you shall find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud. She's like, you're young. You're young. I'm going back to my home. It's not your home. Stay here. You're young. God will provide you with another husband. You'll have a chance to have kids. You're not obligated to go with me. It's a pretty logical case she presents, isn't it? And look what she says. May the Lord show kindness to you. And that may be about the best translation if you have to pick a single word. It's a Hebrew word, hesed, H-E-S-E-D. I used to say hesed, but then I went to seminary, and now I say hesed. It's cool. cost me four years and a lot of money to <laughs> learn that extra thing. I learned a little more than that there. Kindness. It's a Hebrew word. It's used three times in the book of Ruth, all significant. It's used 248 times in the Bible. It's a big word. It does mean kindness. It can be translated mercy. Sometimes loving kindness. Loyal love. It's almost always used to describe God himself. A window into his character. I think perhaps the single best translation would be to say covenant-keeping love. It's a God who always finishes what he starts. It's a God who always keeps his promises. 
The crazy thing is this is the God of Israel. That's how he was viewed. And this woman, Naomi, is praying. She's asking her God to extend the benefits of being in a covenant with him to a Moabite. Couple of them. That's groundbreaking. Not really. Because clear back in Genesis, God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. Yes, I'm going to give you a land. Yes, Abraham and Sarah, descendants. But ultimately, through one of your descendants, the promised Messiah, I will bless every nation, every people group on the planet. Early Christians struggled with it. That's why you had the vision with all the non-kosher animals put down before Peter's eyes. So he'd go meet with Cornelius. Cornelius the pagan, it took him one vision. It took three times for the Christ follower to get it. Don't you dare, especially when it comes to people, don't you dare call any group of people, whether that's a nation, whether that's a people group, whether it's a socioeconomic level, whether it's a lifestyle whether there's gender issues involved and all sorts of stuff that freaks me out, God says, don't you dare call that person unclean because they are not outside the scope of my love. They said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, no, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons? Rhetorical question, implied answer. No, that's probably not possible biologically. They would then become your husbands. Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Well, it's hard to argue with Naomi's logic. Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. Ah, here's the problem. It's great to believe God is in control. He is sovereign. He controls the crops. He controls the weather cycles. Ultimately, he does. But she's taken that and she's made a leap of logic that's landed her in a very unhealthy place of wrong thinking. I'm suffering. That must mean God's displeased with me. He's obviously judging me. He's disciplined me for something. I don't even know what it, what it is. But that's obvious because I'm suffering. God must be ticked at me. You've read this in the Bible elsewhere. Remember Job's friends? Every time he lost something new. Yeah, there it is. When are you going to come clean about that hidden sin? And this poor guy's searching his heart. This is something that varies greatly around the world. If you, if you ask Americans, what percent of Christians do you think God disciplines? This is not your typical crowd, so you're way too smart. Most common answer I get is probably 10%. It's interesting that the scriptures say God disciplines all whom he loves. 100%. When our son was playing a lot of travel baseball, we'd go, I loved the games. I hated the meals afterward. Shooting the straws, throwing stuff at each other, and it's like, oh my goodness. 
And so I'd call Philip down, and sometimes I'd take him outside, and we'd talk. He'd go, Dad, I'm not even the worst one. I know, but you're the only one who's my son. And then he, he got so sick of it, he'd go, I know, I know, and it's a bummer that I have a dad who loves me more than those dads love their sons. And I, and I, and I, and I. I'm like, where have you heard that before? He's like, only a million times. It's one of the proofs that he loves us, isn't it? Most American believers don't believe that. You go other places in the world, every difficult trial means God's upset and it's God's discipline. Truth of the matter is there's three causes of suffering that I know of. Sometimes it is discipline. Sometimes it's a trial not caused by sin, but because God wants to make us stronger. Okay, it's not Ford testing a Toyota, trying to prove that it will break. It's Toyota running more rigorous tests on a Toyota to prove that it won't break and make it stronger. So yeah, sometimes there's discipline. Sometimes it's just he's growing us through trials. And then sometimes, can we please just acknowledge, we live in a fallen planet and messed up things happen because of the general results of sin overall. And that's why he didn't target a specific house with the fire. That's just a, that's just a natural disaster, we say. But uh, Naomi doesn't understand that. At this point, they wept again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. Naomi believes she has nothing to offer. Her daughters-in-law urges Orpah and Ruth to stay in Moab and remarry. Orpah makes this reasonable decision and returns home. Please notice there's no hint of condemnation for her doing this. It's a pretty logical thinking decision she makes. Verse 16, but Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. May the Lord be with me ever so severely if anything but death separates you and me. What phrase does that remind you of? Kind of like wedding vows, huh? She makes a wedding vow quality commitment. This, this is a supernatural book. This is about her love for God. That's supernatural. It's about her love for her mother-in-law, so it's really a miraculous book, okay? <laughs> and most of all, it's about God's love for Naomi, a native-born covenant woman, and a Moabite. We'll discover that all week. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Ruth makes the life-changing decision to stay with Naomi. Ruth tells Naomi, your home will be my home, your people will be my people, your God will be my God, and your future will be my future. This used to be a big wedding song. Anybody have that song at their wedding? Thy people shall be my people. I'll stop when you raise your hand. Anybody? <laughs> My sister had it at hers. I remember that because they put my size 16 feet on little tiny steps about half the size of this, and I fainted halfway through the ceremony. Went straight back. Thankfully, I was not the last one in line. 
I came to in a side room. I'm on my back. My father's looking over. He says, I don't believe this. He said, I looked at him and said, when did you get here? Like I was in heaven. I don't believe that. I think he embellished that. He's the only one in our family who ever embellishes anything, by the way. <laughs> the song going on that right then was Ruth's song to Naomi. Stuck in my memory because of that. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town, notice it doesn't say city, it says town, because that's going to be really significant in the story. Maybe a couple thousand people, no more during this time in history. How many of you live in a town of 5,000 or less? Raise your hands. All right. You will understand the nuances of that as we go on. She says um, she was stirred because of that, and the woman exclaimed, can this be Naomi? She says, don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life bitter. Again, God did this to me. Got some things to learn. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune on me. Can't you imagine the women in the city going, Naomi's just, she's just a little bit bitter. Have you noticed? She's like, exactly, I know. Don't talk about me behind my back. Call me bitter. You don't know the half of it. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Ah, there's nothing like harvest time. Finally, a good crop after years of famine. Naomi is surrounded by all God's bounty, but she doesn't think any of it is her portion. Naomi explains why she's changed. I used to be pleasant, now call me bitter. I was full, now I'm empty. She doesn't say it, but I used to trust God. And now I'm doubting him. Naomi is having a crisis of faith. You know, in a room this size and with the average age that's here, there's a bunch of us in this room that have had a crisis of faith. There's probably some right now in the middle of a crisis of faith. Might be a child or grandchild who's far from the Lord right now, and you brought him here summer after summer. And it's making you ask really big questions about how true is it all if it means so little to those you love so much. Some of you had your career all lined out, and then your company was bought out by a multinational conglomerate. And you found out you were what they call redundant. I never knew I was redundant before. We're not firing you. We're just laying you off. Oh, that's so much better when it comes to spending money at the grocery store. Disillusioned because of a fight in your church or a Christian leader who fell morally. There's three different responses to loss. Naomi is disappointed with God. And that's going to be a big theme through the book is how God meets her in that disappointment. Orpah clings to the familiar, and a lot of us with my personality, that's our tendency. Ruth takes this risky step of faith. Will you please recognize that the Scripture doesn't condemn any of these three women? 
If God doesn't condemn Naomi's struggle, then how about we get off of people's case and get on their team when they hit hard times? You've heard it before, we Christians shoot our wounded. Not a good plan. There's a quote in here by a guy named Earl Grohman. He's in his mid-90s now. He's one of the foremost experts on grief, and he says, grief is not a disorder, a disease, or a sign of weakness. It is an emotional, physical, and spiritual necessity. It is the price you pay for love. The only cure for grief is to grieve. We're going to leave her right there because that's where she is right now. But don't think by the end of the week God's got her in that same place. Pray with me. Father, thank you. Thank you for what is really just the first movement of a four-part story tonight. Thank you for the multitude of lessons we've already seen into your character Thank you for the way I can just feel it, Lord, in this room you are beginning to soften our hearts to others who need the love of Jesus. Father, use this teaching in a way that we could never plan, knit it together with what Albert's sharing, and just use this week to draw our hearts more in sync with your heartbeat. In the awesome name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you, friends.